Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Shane Warren, 6 for 69 from 46 overs. Oh, and there's another one. A very, very good flipper from Shane Warren. That went zip. He's bowled him around the legs once again. And that's uh, Shane Warne's best bowling in Test cricket. You wouldn't believe it. He's done him between his legs. Oh! Got him! Well bowled. 300 Test wickets for Shane Warne. That was a beautiful delivery to get it. And welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, the third in our special series of groundbreaking moments in the game. And you can probably tell from those clips what our subject is this week. Of course, it's Shane Warne and the impact of that ball that he bowled in 1993. The reason we're doing this, of course, is because there's no actual cricket to talk about because of the coronavirus. And so we're bringing you this five-part series instead in which we look at some of the main events and incidents over the last 50 years that have helped shape the game as we know it. In our first two episodes, we looked at the impact of Gary Sober's Nuvraj Singh hitting six sixes in an over in 1968 and 2007. And last time, we looked at the far-reaching consequences of Kerry Packer's two seasons of World Series cricket in the 1970s. And you can still download both episodes. In this episode, we're going to look back at the well, you might call it the rebirth of spin bowling. And if you want to point to one moment that led to that rebirth and captured both the attention and imagination of just about everyone in the cricket world, well, you have to go back to the 4th of June, 1993, at Old Trafford in Manchester. Yeah, it was... Uh... A sort of drying pitch, really. It had started off a little bit damp. It was, of course, Shane Warne's first ball in Ashes cricket to Mike Gatting, who was a renowned player of spin, uh, a guy I played with a lot who I saw actually completely demolish a lot of decent spinners around the world. England were 80 for one at the time in their first innings. And before we hear from the men in the middle and some keen observers who've followed Warne's career over the last 20 years or so, Here's a quick reminder of that ball. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. He asked Kenny Palmer on the way out. 
Kenny Palmer just gave him a raised eyebrow and a little nod, and that's all it needed. It was an incredible delivery. It was bowled from over the wicket. A lot of people actually thinking that Warren went round the wicket, but it was actually bowled from over the wicket, and it sort of dipped in towards Gatting and left him slightly off balance because it, it dipped in so far that it pitched probably six inches outside leg stump and then spun viciously across Mike Gatting's forward prod and just clipped the top of the off bail. It was the most dramatic delivery. Of course, one of many stunning deliveries that, that Warren bowled through his test match career. A lot of people saying, actually, that uh, Mike Gatting wouldn't have missed it if it was a cheese roll, which is a, a little bit unfair because it was the most extraordinary delivery. In the 1980s, generally, spin bowling wasn't all that prominent. It was the pace decade in the 1980s, dominated, of course, by the West Indies. And Warren had come to England in 1993 as a young bowler who'd actually had a fairly poor start to his test career. Career, on debut, one for 150 against the Indians. But he was starting, at least, to find his range after that. In fact, he, he bowled out Sri Lanka in a, a very exciting test match when he was thrown the ball by Alan Border with only a handful of runs required for Sri Lanka to win. So he was starting to have a little bit of an impact. Yeah, he took 17 wickets in a three-test series in New Zealand before Australia came to England for the Ashes series of 1993. But not many in the cricket world, especially in England, knew quite what to make of him. No one was quite sure how good he was. So when he came on to bowl with England, as you say, 80 for one in reply to Australia's 289, there was plenty of interest in how he would get on, but not a sense that he was a guaranteed superstar ready to dominate cricket for the next 15 years. You know, everyone sort of remembers where they were when stunning world events occur you know things like the assassination of John F Kennedy first moon landing the, the twin towers well I remember where I was for this stunning sporting moment fairly prosaic actually I was watching on BBC <laughs> television in my flat in North London it was in the afternoon and as soon as I saw that delivery I thought oh God, that's it England can forget winning the ashes for the next decade <laughs> or so where, where were you yours well yeah I was uh, actually at Leicester of all places, um, playing for Durham. I was part of the Durham squad that was playing a four-day match uh, at the Grace Road ground. And uh, I, I think Durham were batting that afternoon. Uh, we were sitting in the changing rooms. I was actually getting ready for the one-day game on the Sunday uh, and was just watching Durham uh, play play out a, a bit of an afternoon in a championship game. Uh, I think we had the telly on in the background and I'm pretty sure there was a sort of scream of, well, no, or something from a couple of people people that were watching the game but I can't confess that I did see it live uh, one man who of course did see it live uh, well he saw it live until it went past his outside edge anyway was Mike Gatting uh, as I said a, a very fine player of spin didn't really know what to expect I suppose as Shane Warne came on to bowl his first delivery in Ash's test match and he recounts what was going through his head at the time no, well, well, all I always always try and do is just sort of, you know, we hadn't seen him before. So doing what my coach had told me to do is actually have a look at his hand, you know, see which way the ball's going to come out, whether it's going to be a leg break or, or something else. It's a bit like when you're sort of going first ball in and you're opening the batting. You just hope you get one you can have a look at with the bowler and just keep keep uh, keep an eye on the ball and, and uh, just see what the pitch is doing, whether it's going to turn or not. You hadn't had the chance to see any video of him or watch him. Well, had, you know. yes, but the, the video was from, I mean, a couple of test matches. I think he played in the West Indies in India. And uh, he he didn't have a great sort of series over there, but you know, they all said he could spin the ball. So we'd seen a little bit of his his, his sort of thing. I knew it was a leg break, which was easy to, easiest to read. You could see the ball sort of spinning in in the air. And I know it was a leg break. And you could hear it, he fizzed it. He really, you could see he really gave it a good tweak. As you have to sometimes with leg breaks bowlers because the ball drifts in at you a bit like left arm spinners. You have to wait a little bit longer. So you never get a, you know, if it's coming down the leg side, it's a bit like playing an on drive. You never really get a long stride in like you can do on the offside just to sort of cover everything. But it, it really sort of swung in as it, as it, as it does um, to, to a right-hander. And it, and it sort of, kept going for a bit further than you thought it would. And then all of a sudden, the big thing was, of course, because it was quite quick through the air, uh, and it gripped, and it turned. I was probably wasn't as close as I'd like to have been to it to actually you know, negate the spin if it could. 
But because it was going down there, I didn't want to sort of... Uh, I wasn't worried about it turning that much, to be perfectly honest. It was second day of a test match. We'd had the heavy roller on it, the sun had been out, and it looked a pretty decent pitch. Um, so I didn't expect it to turn as much as it did. Perhaps in, in uh, you know, it might have been what I might have swept had I been in for a little while longer. You, you know, you always think about these things when you when you afterwards. But at that particular time, all I was worried about was uh, I was going down the leg side. You know, there wasn't a great deal of rust. It was obviously something it turned on, and he just pitched it in the right place for it to do everything right, which was just uh, amazing, really, because it only just hit the top of the off 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 stump off bale. And you weren't entirely sure that it had bowled you initially, were you? No, I wasn't, because there was only one bale on the floor. And, I mean, I know Ian Healy was as surprised as I was to see it turn that much. He knew it was a leg break, too. He was going down the leg side. And, and, and you normally hear the ball hit the stumps, don't you? You know, you normally know when you're, when, you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're out, the ball hits the stumps or whatever. I know it's a slow bowler, but at the end of the day, you still normally hear something. But it just sort of lifted the bale off as it clipped the top of the off, off, off stump and, and there was only one bale on the floor. Can you remember what was actually said? I mean, did someone say, <laughs> you're bold, mate, or you've got to go, or whatever? Words, I mean, to, that, words to that effect, Jos. A family <laughs> show, you can't repeat what was actually said. <laughs> it was a polite inquiry to leave. You're right. out. Yes. By the time he'd looked at it, and it'd been played so many times over the tea break, because I think it was tea break, um... Poor bugs who had to come in after me. I mean, had, had all tea break to keep watching it and seeing what's going on, and mm. it wasn't 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 the best sort of thing to be watching. You know, everybody's thinking every ball's in a turn like that, but in fact, it doesn't. And it does play with people's minds. And it, well, it just launched the guy, didn't it? It, it? And it's something that he he managed to with his team to just build on from that particular point. Funnily enough, though, where they built on our house and flats, you know what they called it? The Warren Court. Because the bloke knew that I'd been done by Shane Warne and he wanted to call it Warne Court. So it's now called Warne Court. I haven't told Warne it, I don't think. You may have been able to tell there that the Mike Gatting was actually eating a bit of toast during that uh, that interview. He can't, he can't help himself, you know. He says he's on a diet, but he's still eating toast during an interview. But, you know, he did put it down after a, a couple of minutes and it was just interesting to hear his... Uh, recounting of that moment, uh, which obviously did hit England like an absolute bulldozer. It knocked the stuffing out of them in not only that test match, which Warren took eight wickets, but also the series, which he took 34. Uh, Australia won it comfortably. And it, it really it, it sort of knocked the stuffing out of England for, for quite a long time thereafter, didn't it? Oh, it did. And that point that you thought they've got a superstar here, you know, a guy who can come on and do that, spin the ball that much. And he just kept taking English wickets, series after series after series, even as far as 2005, actually, where they didn't win the series. But he took a whole bag load over 40 wickets in that series. A r- remarkable cricketer, prodigious talent and just so alluring. I mean, just fantastic to watch, even even as a, a follower of England cricket, and you, you know, if you those wanting England to do well, he was just such a, a genius. Mm. There's, no, there's, yeah, me- there's no other word for it. No, absolutely uh, mesmerising to watch and mesmerising young and old uh, because of that sort of ancient art of leg spin, which is a sort of sleight of hand, and obviously the ball coming down really quite slowly, in much contrast to the 1980s when it was being propelled at 90 miles an hour by the the West Indies fast bowlers in particular. Particular. So it was a real contrast to that era, and it had a, a, a huge impact on, as I say, many ages, not least a young boy of only 10 at the time, Amal Rajan, now the BBC media editor. You'll know him also uh, as a former editor of the independent newspaper, too. Uh, he was always fascinated by cricket, and Shane Warne totally captured his interest to such an extent, actually, that later on in life he wrote a book the twirly men, all about the great spinners of the world. And he really puts that ball into context. Warren's legacy on me was that he hijacked my childhood. I mean, he completely, the rascal, I mean, he completely and utterly hijacked my childhood. You know, when I, all my mates were off sort of, you know, uh, vigorously flirting with girls, uh, experimenting in, you know, smoking, drinking and whatnot, there was me cycling off to um, my local club, St. John's CC, on the edge of Trinity Road and Burtwood Lane in Wandsworth, uh, doing net practice before school because, you know, I wanted to bowl the perfect leg break and I spent years and years and years toiling at it. So he hijacked my childhood, but um, I, I forgive him for it. 
I met him not long ago. We had a, a nice laugh about it. In terms of cricket, I think he did a couple of things. The first is it's really, really, really important to understand that when Shane Warne bowled that delivery to Mike Gatting, when he emerged on the scene, having you know had a difficult test debut, I think he went for about 150 runs as Ravi Shastri hit a double 100 off him in India, you know, leg spin was nearly dying. It was the great Abdul Qadir, sadly the, the, the late great Abdul Qadir, who kept the flame of leg spin alive during the 1980s, which was dominated by pace. And we had this extraordinary situation where leg spin as an art form was not extinct, but it was certainly in abeyance. Along comes this fantastically charismatic character, this hugely big personality. He says, hang on a second, guys. This might be tough, but if you can pull it off, if you can combine ferocious spin with total control and variations, then you can uh, be the best bowler that ever lived. And to my mind, Warren is by a substantial margin because he did the hardest thing it's possible to do with a cricket ball. I think he is the greatest bowler that ever lived, just ahead of uh, the great Sydney Barnes, who um, I would still put into an all-time eleven, but comes after Warren for me. I think the thing about that delivery specifically is that the Gatting ball, the, the, the ball of the century, had a transcendent quality, which is something that happens only very rarely in sport. What I mean by that was is both that it was profoundly, deeply rooted in a particular moment in the history of the Ashes, in the history of this guy's career, this his first ball in England, in the history of, of cricket itself after the, the, the pace bowling domination of the 1980s by the West Indies. But there's also something about that ball which was timeless. What he set out to do, which was to spin the ball up and spin it sideways, to bring a batsman forward, to make him think the ball is going to be on an off-stump line, but actually it swerves to leg stump, forcing Gatting late on to play through mid-wicket when he wanted to be playing straighter. All of that is somehow so beautiful, so magical, so clever, so perfect, that I think it exists long before and long after the exact moment where he dumbfounded poor old Mike Gatting. Well, that's Amal Rajan, who's currently presenting Radio 2's breakfast show. I think he sums it up perfectly. It was one ball in one match, and yet it had such a, a dramatic influence on the future and you know, it, the past as well, sort of the link with the, the past. Yours, you talked about being at Leicester that day and coming to the end of your playing career. Did, did you ever face Shane Warne? I just missed out on facing him, actually, because uh, he didn't play in the match against Durham for the Australians, uh, which was during that summer. Uh, so I never got to face him, you know, actually in a, in the middle. What I did do, though, was I, I, like many people, got very fascinated by his art. And, and so I went out to cover uh, a series that Australia played against the West Indies. It was one of those series where, you know, the West Indies had been the previously dominant team and suddenly Australia was starting to jeopardise and, in fact, overtake their dominance in that sort of mid-90s. And so I went to, to watch the 96-97 series in Australia against the West Indies. And I was mates... I played, actually, alongside Jeff Marsh, who was at that time the Australian coach. And he invited me down to Nets. It was not long since I'd retired. So he invited me down to Nets one day at the uh, Adelaide Oval before the Test match there against the West Indies. And Warren was there. And it was the first time that I met Terry Jenner, who, of course, was Shane Warren's coach. And that was another thing that he did, which was totally different from really any other previous player, certainly bowler, is he had his own coach that, that he almost took around with him. Terry Jenner, who he'd met first at the Australian Cricket Academy in the late 80s. And Terry Jenner, of course, was a leg spinner in his own right for Australia in the, in the 1970s. And, in fact, then had, had a difficult period in his life. He was actually imprisoned for embezzlement and had just come out of, of prison in the late 80s when he met Shane Warne at the Australian Cricket Academy. And they just hit it off immediately. And, basically, Terry Jenner passed on all these little tricks that he'd learnt uh, in the art of leg spin to Warne, the young Warne, sort of 21, 22. And I, I saw them working together in this uh, session in the Nets at Adelaide one day. And, you know, just for example, Warne would be bowling at Matthew Hayden in the Nets and Matthew Hayden would sort of belt a couple of balls back over his head. And so Terry Jenner would come over and, and just say, uh, try going a little bit wider of the crease and see what that does. And Warne would try that and uh, he'd find that the same delivery didn't quite behave the same because it was bowled from a different angle. And that was very much the source of Warren's great belief that it wasn't what you bowled, but how it got there that was the key. So you could bowl two exactly 
identical deliveries from different points on the crease and they behave differently. And Jenner said that he learnt to do that from bowling at Garfield Sobers in the 1970s, who, of course, was a phenomenal left-handed batsman and suggested that Warren should try the same, try different angles. And so I just remember watching him bowl a little bit wider on the crease to Hayden, the same delivery, getting the edge in the nets and going up to, to Terry Jenner and sort of saying, yeah, thanks, that's, that's, a, that's a good idea, I'll try that tomorrow. The test match started the next day and Warren got two wickets in an over. He got Sh- Shivnarayan Chandapal and Brian Lara both out using that slightly wider of the crease angle. Terry Jenner was on radio at the time commentating and I was stood behind him in the commentary box and as Warren took the second of those wickets using you know Terry Jenner's strategy he just turned to the commentary box and gave him a big thumbs up and Terry Jenner's you know smile was written across his his face and it was a great way of of, of bringing Jenner actually who'd had a difficult time in his life back into cricket as well so it had a sort of double effect you know Jenner benefited Warren and Warren benefited Jenner he became known as the spin doctor and for years became an absolute guru of, of, of the art of leg spin. And I think Shane Warne was, was a, a much cleverer bowler as a result of, of his uh, input. An even lesser known story is the fact that you helped Warne yourself, didn't you? Well, yeah, I mean, in a very small way. Um, I, I, it, was, it sort of got to the stage of the uh, early 2000s and Channel 4 had started covering English test matches and we brought in Hawkeye uh, as a, a tool, you know, really to to help the viewers understand where the ball was going. But Shane Warne was interested in this because he used to watch the highlights or watch the, the TV when he was in the dressing room and during the Ashes of 2001, he'd come out into the middle uh, before play and say, oh, you, you, what did you see yesterday, analyst? Or, in fact, he used to call me analyst, which wasn't particularly nice. Uh, and I'd say, well, you know, I saw that ball you bowled yesterday was actually hitting the stumps, so given not out. But we looked at the transparency of the batsman and it showed the ball was hitting the wicket. So you probably got robbed of a, an LBW there. And he's, oh, yeah, oh, well, thanks for that. Yeah, great. Uh, he then went to Sharjah in 2002 and played in a series against Pakistan in which he took 16 wickets, 10 of them LBW, and the same umpire who'd been umpiring that 2001 Ashes series in England was Steve Buckner, who had picked up on some of these deliveries that Hawkeye had showed were actually hitting the stumps but had been given not out on LBW appeals. And he'd started realising that a lot more of Shane Warne's deliveries, especially the slider, the one he just bowls that goes straight on, were hitting the wicket. So he'd applied what he'd learnt from Hawkeye, and Shane Warne had also applied what he'd learnt from Hawkeye to get more and more people out LBW. Well, it was interesting to hear Mike Gatting say earlier that no one had really seen that much of Shane Warne before he came to England in 1993. He's very different these days, of course, because all batsmen know pretty much everything there is to know or quite a lot about most bowlers because there's so much video analysis now and the batsmen have all the stats as well. Not much known about Shane Warne. He played a handful of test matches before he came to England in 1993. But there was a lot of chatter about him. That, that was the thing. He did create a lot of excitement about his background, his, his lifestyle, how good he was capable of being. No one really knew that in the early 90s. Gideon Haig, the Australian journalist who wrote the book on Warren, explains Warren's background. He was an archetype of, a, um, of uh, the suburban Australia, not necessarily you know, your paradigmatic outback Australian, but he was uh, from the place where most Australians grow up, uh, most Australians go to school. Most Australians learn to play sport. Uh, he was middle class, probably in some respects upper middle class, which is, you know, um, part of an aspirational Australian culture. Uh, he was uh, a young man who grew up in the thrall of, of summer and winter sports, cricket and, uh, and Australian rules football, in the classic Australian way. Uh, he was a bit directionless when he when he finished his schooling. Um, he was talented, but he'd never really had to apply himself. Uh, he'd relied on, on natural talent. 
that's a little bit Australian in the sense that we tend to privilege natural talent here rather than necessarily, uh, you know, hard work and application. We, we, we believe that talent should out. Uh, we believe that we're sort of unlike the English. We define ourselves in contradistinction to the English in terms of, of allowing talent the space to grow rather than insisting on its compliance with, uh, with certain orthodoxies. And I think the other thing about Warren that was integral to his progress was that he was a kind of a, um, a, a, a part of an Australian mythology of leg spin. Um, he was in the tradition of your Maleys and your Grimmets and O'Reilly's and Benno's, a, a, a great chain of being that had been uh, interrupted by the, uh, the advent of the fast bowling ascendancy in the 1970s and 80s, but was still devoutly to be wished for by, uh, by traditional cricket fans. Now, when you grew up in Australia in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, which I did, you were often told by old cricket salts that uh, there was this thing called leg spin and it was great and amazing and, you know, you'd never forget it and there were great practitioners of it, uh, and, but you never saw it. You, know, you never saw it. You saw... Uh, good old-fashioned battling cricketers like you know, Terry Jenner and, uh, and, and Bob Holland and, and Sleep. They weren't particularly inspirational. They certainly weren't particularly charismatic. It was fast bowlers who uh, kind of ruled the cultural roost in, in those days. So when Warren appears in the, in the early 1990s, if you like, he is a little bit like a myth made flesh. He is like a prophecy fulfilled. One of the interesting bits of your book, which I, I enjoyed, was that you talk about leg spin and Warren's, you know, incredible ability to take wickets and brilliant balls, brilliant deliveries, but actually what interests you and probably what makes leg spin so fascinating is the process towards yes. getting that wicket rather than the wicket yes. itself, and he was the, the ultimate uh, example of that. Yes, he was, and in, in, in some respects he belied... Uh, that common assumption about leg spin that it was an expensive luxury, that you know it produced occasional great balls, but could also yield you plenty of runs. You know the, the Arthur Maley tradition, the guy who takes four for three hundred and sixty-two of sixty-four overs against Victoria, and complains that you know the the, um, the spectators in the crowd were dropping the catches off him. Warren was not like that at all. He was more in the Bill O'Reilly tradition, which was never give the batsman an inch never give them uh, a free hit, never allow them to, uh, to enjoy any liberty, uh, to, to be all over them incessantly, and then to produce that, uh, that, that ball that hoodwinks them. I sometimes thought that Warren used to get um, wickets with balls that other league spinners didn't get because he was so tight at other times. That ball that was slightly loose, slightly higher tossed, slightly wider, it was otherwise, you know, a, a, a ball of no particular distinction. But because the batsmen had been starved of opportunities to score for so long that they seized on it over eagerly and uh, and destroyed themselves in the in the process. And the other thing that was that was counterintuitive about Warren is I don't think that it's been a leg spinner in the history of the game who's bowled round the wicket so routinely. You know, bowling round the wicket had always been looked upon as a sort of a, a defensive configuration. Uh, was something that you, did, that you did simply to drive the runs. He turned it into uh, a, an angle of attack that had wicket-taking possibilities. Uh, you know, he loved the side, size, the side of a, the side of a rough outside a, a right-handed leg stump, and used it to uh, to great advantage. He loved seeing the ball spin. You know, there was part of him that was mischievous and gleeful at the at the ball turning it to, at right angles, even if it might just miss the bat. That was all part of the theatre of Warren and the theatre in which the, the, the batsman became a kind of an unwilling uh, extra. Um, you know, he, was, he was just a pawn in, the, in, in, in Warren's game. Yeah, I love the way that you use theatre and your, uh, you know, the way you talk about Warren and describe Warren's bowling, the, the build-up to the delivery and all the little <laughs> mannerisms that he does... Uh, even to the extent there's the follow-through at the end, as well as all the different deliveries, are all part of that theatre. Well, even just the walk back was a kind of a bit of a theatre. Now, he was very communicative on the walk back. He often used to talk, stop for a chat with the umpire, he used to look around, survey the scene, 
and you know, gradually draw the action into himself uh, until everyone was, was, was watching him. And then he'd pause. He'd always pause at the top of his run just to, just to gather himself, just to make the batsman wait that little tiny bit longer than perhaps was comfortable. Uh, it all came naturally, but there was never anything unselfconscious about um, what Warren did. He was always being watched, and he liked being watched. He liked being the centre of attention. So that's Gideon Hay, who is an esteemed cricket writer, writes for The Times uh, as well as The Australian and and writes many books as well. And I think his book on Warren is, is one of his best. I mean, it's fascinating reading how he just followed Warren's uh, whole process uh, as well as his skill. And I, I love this description here of, of his run-up. Fast bowlers can often be distinguished by their run-ups. Slow bowlers are not so obviously idiosyncratic. But Warren's run-up was nothing of the kind. It was a walk-up, decisive but nonchalant, like somebody sidling up to whisper sedition in your ear. The ball commenced its journey mysteriously in Warren's left hand before being imperceptibly slipped into the right, as though it were being slid around beneath one of those cups by a sidewalk hustler. And generally, you know, Gideon talks about the, the theatre of Warren's bowling in great detail. And I think that's what made him so so compelling. It wasn't just the, the brilliant wicket-taking deliveries, but it was the strategies associated with them as well. And the way that he took a, a bit of time between each delivery just to make the batsman wonder what he might be about to do. Uh, I, actually, I described him once as... Cricket's greatest wicket thief, conning batsmen out of their wickets with deliveries which they thought was going to do something and actually did something completely different. And, of course, he had his famous pickpocket delivery, which was the one that bowled the batsmen round the back of their legs, pitching outside leg stump, which was quite revolutionary in its style. Uh, actually, I remember Michael Atherton telling me once that Warren bowled him behind his legs at Laws. He was going to try and sweep the ball, and he was bowled behind his legs by that big spinner out of the rough. So in the next Test match, he decided to take a leg stump guard instead of middle stump so that he could nullify the potential for being bowled round his legs and cover that line of attack. And Warren immediately realised and started bowling a bit wider outside off stump because Atherton's body was now too far over to the leg side and got him out court slip. So, you know, he was just so clever at manipulating batsmen around the crease and using all his different deliveries. And, and I say using all his different deliveries, in a way, the things like the flipper and the googly, which he used to use quite a, early in his career, almost became redundant. And he just employed the leg spinner and the slider. And those were enough to take all those wickets. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, how many balls did he have? He, he would come up before a, a new series and he'd say, oh, yeah, I'm working on a new delivery. Uh, was, that I mean, was that purely about getting into a batsman's mind? Did he b basically just have two top deliveries? Yeah, essentially he did. Uh, he was very good at, uh, I mean, if you, you know, if you talk to sort of the Richie Benno's people who really understand leg spin, they would uh, point to the slightly different trajectories that he would use sometimes, slightly dropping his arm to get more side spin or bringing his arm higher to get more overspin, little things like that. But essentially he bowled the leg break and the slider, which looked like a leg break, but came out of the front of the hand and just skidded on. And batsman would play for the ball to spin, and quite often it didn't spin. You know, he came to England, as you say, with sort of promising a new delivery. I remember him once arriving and saying he had something called a zooter. Well, it was just complete kidology. You know, he, he still stuck largely to the leg spinner and, and the slider. The other point, of course, to make as well, he had these these two excellent deliveries, but it was his accuracy, wasn't it? I mean, spinners especially leg spinners, there was nearly always some rubbish in there, you know, the, the full toss or a couple of full tosses that just relieved so much pressure on the batsman. The, the point about Warren is that there wasn't a lot of rubbish in there and there was a lot of good in there as well. So there was a lot of attacking bowling, but there was also a lot of clever, in a way, defensive bowling. That you know, He was able to build up pressure on a batsman because he wasn't going for two fours and over or for you know, five, six and over. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, he, you know, he had he mixed those 
uh, those brilliant wicket-taking deliveries in amongst a suffocating blanket of accuracy. Uh, if you look at his uh, economy rate, the, the amount of runs he gave away per over, it was about 2.6 through his career in test cricket, which is absolutely phenomenal for a wrist spinner to show uh, the degree of control like that for an art which is very difficult to master. You were a bit of a spinner. I, I know you don't turn the ball. <laughs> But I know you, you, you liked bowling your spin, your left-arm spin. How do you think Warren's arrival and general potency influenced spinners around the world? I think Warren showed that spin could be really effective at top-level cricket. I know that sounds a very basic thing to say, but we'd had you know 15 or 20 years where spin hadn't been that effective. We had the, the pace decade of the 1980s. Lance Gibbs, who took 300 test match wickets he'd finished in in 1976 so largely speaking apart from Abdul Kader there was this long barren period but with the introduction of Warren spin was sort of the flavor of the month again you remember there's Murley as well we must mention Murley who actually took more wickets than than Shane Warren we mustn't forget about him he was a you know, completely different type of bowler you know unique bowler Murley and you know he's ha- he has those against him and those are, are for him with the, the way he bowled there's Anil Cumbly as well who was a contemporary of Warren and Murley took over 600 wickets and you if you look at those bowlers they had a, a massive impact I think the captains realized that spinners good spinners can can win you matches and you look at the bowlers that have followed them since you know people like Harbhajan Singh who took over 400 test match wickets Herath a bit later over 400 test match wickets you know we've got bowlers in the spin bowlers in the deep into the 300s now you know Nathan Lyons up at 390 test match wickets this is orthodox spinners of course helped by DRS that was a massive boost for for orthodox finger spin bowlers but I think Warren showed that you know, spin is can be just as effective as pace in unlocking test match teams. And also as well, there's just something so uh, beguiling about watching a clever spin bowler. I think just as a watcher, it's so enjoyable. Okay, it's, it's, it is great to watch a uh, you know, magnificent fast bowler roaring in, not as long as you're not at the other end. You know, it's one of the it's one of the great things that uh, draws you to cricket is a is a class spinner. Uh, it's just fascinating to watch. And I think that was that was the big thing about Warren. Not only was he successful on his own, but he showed other spin bowlers, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, of course, he was the source of Australia's dominance uh, for the best part of 15 years. They, they barely lost a series between 1995 and 2007 when he retired. Of course, they did lose that series against England in 2005, but that was even despite Warren taking 40 wickets in the series himself. Uh, 708 test wickets in all, the second most in history. You can't see anyone ever really beating that. Obviously, Murley got his 800, and as you say, we shouldn't forget him either but Warren was a genius uh, 195 ashes wickets few bowlers would have taken more than 195 test wickets in their entire career Warren took 195 wickets in the ashes so it just shows how uh, how big an influence uh, he he was in that and then after retirement you thought well phew hopefully from a batsman's point of view, we, we, we've seen enough now and we, we've got over that, that period, that dominance of, a, of an exceptional spin bowler. And then suddenly he, he re-emerges in T20 as captain of the Rajasthan Royals uh, in, in the IPL's first season, the inaugural season. Of course, the Rajasthan Royals won that tournament in the first year as well, under Warren's captaincy. And Gideon Hay reflects on how important he was. Cricket during his career was undergoing great change and he was uniquely adaptable to, to all the situations. Don't forget he was a great one-day bowler as, as well as a great test bowler and eventually became a very fine T20 bowler. Uh, he, he, was, he was the master of, of every situation and, and never ceased to challenge himself. You know, there was nothing in it for Warren to, to come back at the end of his career and, and play at the Rajasthan Royals and some, you know, because he'd never succeeded in India before he was really taking a huge chance. There was nothing foreordained about his success there. He was the only foreign captain in that first season of the uh, of the IPL. Uh, and he loved it. He absolutely loved it because he got complete mastery of that franchise. He had no coach. He had a support staff that was hand-picked. He was captain. He was key bowler. He was the major domo. He was the inspiration to a, to a young team 
and uh, managed to make his mark on India at a point where it seemed to be beyond him. So, you know, what a remarkable cricketer and what a great privilege to have lived through his, his era. You know, one of the reasons why I wrote on Warren was because I wanted to be able to remind myself and to explain to future readers what it was like to live in his thrall um, and to be fascinated by what he what he brought to the game and how unexpected it was and, and what a blessing. Shane Warne is still involved, actually, with the Rajasthan Royals uh, as a sort of ambassador and also uh, helping them with their academy, which they've started in England down at Reed School in Surrey. And he talked recently about how they pulled off that amazing heist of winning the tournament in the first year. The only thing that was unanimous in 2008... Um, that the Royals had the worst squad and would come last. I mean, that was the only basic thing. None of us knew what to expect. Um, you know, to ha- oh, I'm grateful for the opportunity because, the, you know, the other seven franchises, you had Tendulkar, uh, Seaway, Ganguly, Dravid, Laxman, Dhoni, were the other seven. So all the big Indian guys. And then there was me, retired player and played for 18 months. Then they had all their coaches and I was captain coach as well. Um, so we put together the side. You then go and play the first game, you get absolutely hammered. We lose terribly. And everyone goes, we were all right about the Royals. They're no good. They're hopeless. Um, and Warren's no good and blah, blah, blah. To then go on and win it the way we did, I think helped give the IPL credibility because everyone loves the underdog story. Was it Leicester with the footy? Yeah, Leicester with the footy. Everyone loved that story. You know, the Royals was a great story. So you combine that with like someone like Brennan McCullum in the first ever game gets 158. Suddenly everyone goes, this IPL is pretty bloody cool. Um, so I think that first year was something special. For me, how we got it done and with the team we had, the key as a leader was to try and get those, some of those guys to play above themselves, to play better than what they were. Um, and you need your international players to probably win one game off their, just themselves. Whether for me that was a great spell, I'd get four for ten or something and win the game, or a batsman to get 80 or 50 balls to win. You need the internationals to sort of win one game each, and then as a team, everyone sort of contributes to win the other three or four games to make the finals. And then it's a bit of potluck, you just need to play well on the day. Um, but after, after halfway through that tournament, I, I, we had some, you know, every now and then you get involved with a group of people, whether it's work or sport, there's just a little bit of magic. You can't quite put your finger on what it is. Um, but we, we just had a bit of magic in our group. And um, everyone knew their roles. We gave everyone their roles. Everyone got along. Um, we integrated well all together as internationals and the local talent. And it was, we all had a bit of fun too. So it was, it was, it was a great time. Well, it was very, very satisfying for me to be part of it and to do that and to win it the first year. Yeah, Shane Warne certainly had a massive impact on the, the Royals in 2008. I'm actually remembering winning one match with the bat, taking 18 off a final over to win a game. So, I mean, he had that incredible presence, I think. Players who played with him, especially in that Rajasthan team, they, they believed so much in him. We talked about Warne reviving spin bowling in, in test match cricket and also you know, DRS has helped spin bowling in, in test match cricket as well. The spin is also to the fore in in T20. Curiously, in a way, you thought when T20 started, oh, spinners just get smashed everywhere. But that is not the case. And Warren relishes their impact in the modern game. When T20 first started, everyone thought the spinners are going to just get smashed. Because as soon as the spin comes on, people go, oh, here we can whack it. But now we've seen through the middle overs of 2020 cricket or, or even one-day cricket, that if the spinners can take wickets in that middle overs, then the opposite, the team batting generally just tries to post a total that's a par score that they can try and defend. Um, so any of these wrist spinners that can try and take wickets, big wickets, like suddenly you've got Rashid Khan, Adil Rashid, Yassir Shah, Kuldeep Yadav, Chahal, even Zeb. Suddenly all these wrist spinners are appearing and taking wickets and starting to dominate white ball cricket. Um, which is helping their teams. Um, so I love it. I think it's great. And there's no one that's really the same. If you look at all the legs, they're all completely different. Rashid Khan bowls super fast. Kuldeep Yadav's bowling low 70s. So I think it's fascinating watching all those the spinners. And the successful teams, like England, like India, are playing two leg spinners. Um, so, yeah, the spin to win, I think, because most of the batsmen aren't reading the spinners. 
Um, both, all the spinners can go both ways. So I think why they've been successful is one, the batsmen know they have to try and go after the spinner, but they're not picking the spinner. So it's a little bit harder to go after a spinner if you're not picking him. So I think that's where the confusion's happening, and I think that's why the spinners are being so dominant. Is it the white ball thing as well? It's harder to pick. Well, it's a very interesting question because Rashid Khan, if he plays a day game, if you look at all his day games, he gets hammered. If he plays at night time, they can't pick him as much. So he's on the lights, the white ball. And and, and because he's got such a quick arm... Not much difference in his... That's right. But in the day, you can see. And the other thing is, if you watch... This is a thing I tell young spinners. If you go where the sun is, you bowl with the sun behind you, it's a lot easier, a lot harder to pick you than if the sun's the other end. Right. Now, that might sound really dumb. Yeah. But if you, so the ball's in shadow. If the, when the sun shines, yeah. get, get a mate of yours to just put your arm up like that with a ball in there with the sun behind you and then go to the other end and do it. I promise you, it's, it yeah. sounds really weird and odd and ridiculous. And no, so it doesn't because it's, 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 it's not light on, on the but ball. But I promise you, it's so much clearer the other way. Yeah. You can actually see a lot better. Right. So you can hear from that last story there about using shadow how clever Warren was as a bowler. He was looking for all those little tiny assets, little tiny opportunities to try and deceive the batsman in some way or other, even using the impression of light from one end or the other to just conceal what he's trying to do or what a leg spinner is trying to do. And, you know, the idea that you bowl with the sun behind you, so that, you know, especially when the sun's going sort of down lowish in the sky and it's behind you, so it's sort of semi in the batsman's eyes and it's much harder for them to see which way okay. the shine or which way the seam is pointing uh, is it, just all part of his art. And you can see how other bowlers, modern bowlers, are using those kind of little tricks, like Rashid Khan, uh, who, of course, is the, the number one T20 bowler in the world. In fact, if you look at the list of top ten ranked T20 bowlers, nine of them are spinners and six of them are wrist spinners. And that really all stems from Shane Warne's influence, first when he emerged in Test cricket, and then latterly when he introduced the importance of leg spin to T20. I think it's worth pointing out that Warne's career, fantastic though it was, was not always uh, straightforward. It wasn't always one long line of success. You know, lots of scrapes off the field. In 2003, for example, at the age of 33, he was banned for a year for taking an illegal substance, a drug that was often used to help weight loss or as a masking agent for other drugs. He missed a World Cup in South Africa as a result, not that it harmed Australia very much because they still went on to win the tournament. And it was a question of, you know, is he going to come back as, as he was before? Is he going to be as good? Well, he certainly answered that because he was tremendously successful after it as well as before. But during that year-long ban, TV commentator and former Hampshire captain Mark Nicholas says you couldn't keep Warren away from the game. When he had the year off um, for being found to have taken a di- diuretic, he used to quietly cajole his mate who ran an indoor centre on the outskirts of the city of Melbourne, uh, an indoor cricket centre. And he used to cajole him to open it at six in the morning and shut it again at seven and then reopen at the usual time of eight. A couple of times a week for a few months, maybe three times a week, actually, um, so that he could bowl. Because the band meant he couldn't bowl anywhere. He went in on his own at six o'clock in the morning and he bowled with a handkerchief and bowled hard, bowled long and hard. He bowled for an hour solid on his own, ball after ball after ball. He didn't stop for a sandwich. And I was staying with him and he said, why don't you come and have a hit? So I went in a couple of mornings and batted on a bouncy indoor surface, which was a great experience. And the old sort of urban myth that, that you could hear the sound of the ball through the air was completely true, of course, in the silence of an indoor school with nothing else to interrupt the sound. You really could hear it. And I then sort of stood an umpire, and when you heard it come out of the fingers, it was great. It was almost a little click as well as a fizz. Um, and it really was like a little shot of electricity as the ball was released. You work with Richie, obviously Richie Benham a lot as well. Um, I felt perhaps that the advent of Warren gave the ageing Richie perhaps a new lease of life. Did you see it like that? They were quite kind of intertwined. Warney tells very funny stories about ringing Richie up. One where he said, hang on, I'll go see if he's in. 
And he came back and said, get a warning, how are you? Almost like he'd had a butler on the show to answer the phone. Um, warning makes it funny, I haven't managed it. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and, of course, um, they shared a fair bit, uh, not in lengthy meetings or conversations or coaching sessions, but in tidbits. And one of the early things that Richie said was, you've got to bowl six consecutive leg breaks perfectly over after over. And it'll take you three years to learn how to do it. And um, Warney did it in two. And he said, and what's more, he did it in two, which tells you how great he was. And he said, Richie, that that was the same bit of advice that Riley had given him. And he said it took him three years and more. And then you can start evolving the other deliveries. But until you've got a stock leg break that is repeatable, you, you're, you're going to be anybody's pigeon. Um, mm. And Warney mastered it in two. Mark Nicholas, in fact, wrote the Shane Warne autobiography, No Spin, which came out last year and was a sort of warts and all uh, account of, of Shane's life. Mark has actually spent a lot of time with, with Shane, both uh, as, a, as a commentator and, and as a friend as well, as a, as a biographer. And they, they know each other extremely well. And, uh, you know, actually, Richie Benno's influence comes through both men too. Mark was very influenced by Richie Benno, and, and obviously so was, was Shane Warne, bringing uh, the, the modern version of the ancient art, which Richie had inherited from Bill O'Reilly, and Bill O'Reilly had inherited from Clary Grimmett. So it really continues a, a fantastic line through the generations, this particular art. And Warne himself really made brilliant use towards the end of his career of technology. And that is going to be our subject next week. So in this series, continuing groundbreaking moments in cricket, we're going to look at the influence of technology and how that is enhanced or maybe detracted from the game, according to, to how you see it. So thanks very much for listening. Look after everyone and keep safe. Goodbye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.